Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In recent episodes, we've been working our way through the book of Numbers. Numbers traces Israel's wilderness wanderings from their exodus out of Egypt to the border of the Promised Land. Throughout the book, the Israelites are continually reminded to set their desire fully upon this ultimate object, the land of Canaan. If the people can remain focused upon it, they will view the Canaanites as an obstacle to this objective, which will help the community band together and prevent their mimetic violence upon the inhabitants of Canaan. But along the way, the people lose sight of their desired object and they cave in to various whims and cravings. This lack of focus generates mimetic rivalry within the community. Rather than venting their rivalry upon an external enemy, the people engage in rivalry with one another. For this reason, the people refuse to engage in rivalry with the Edomites, preferring to circumnavigate their territory. However, as mimetic rivalry grows, the people look for scapegoats to execute. Instead of devoting the Edomites to destruction, the people vent their mimetic rivalries upon Aaron, their communal scapegoat. The people then grant the position of the chief scapegoat, that is the high priest, to Eleazar, Aaron's son. In our study of previous chapters, I've also suggested that the community scapegoat Moses and Miriam. Yet in the last episode, we saw the community turn a corner as they attacked the king of Arad and devoted his city to destruction. Perhaps this change in attitude will see the people successfully navigate their wilderness wanderings as they learn to set their desire on the promised land of Canaan and vent their rivalries collectively towards the people they view as obstacles to this object. Let's read on now from Numbers chapter 21 verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from among us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it upon a pole. And if our serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Later Christian tradition reinterprets this passage as a type of Christ. According to John chapter 3 verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have the life of the age. Let's flesh this idea out from a mimetic perspective. Notice the dual role of snakes in this passage as both pathogenic and medicinal. They are both the sickness and the cure, the poison and the antidote. 
As we've seen throughout our studies, this is exactly how the primitive sacred operates. Mimetic rivalry can either destroy the community from within or facilitate triumph as it unites the people against a common enemy. This passage juxtaposes the familiar images of fire and the serpent. Throughout the Pentateuch, fire has represented the primitive sacred's power to conquer and destroy. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw the snake presented as the purveyor of wisdom, which exposes mimetic rivalry and the scapegoat mechanism upon which civilizations are founded. Numbers chapter 21 verses 4 to 9 now employ this dual imagery to describe a turning point for the Israelite people. As we saw in the previous passage, the community is learning to wield the power of the mimetic rivalry against their enemies. This new wisdom will empower the community's conquest of Canaan later in the narrative. In our passage, the people were bitten by fiery snakes, but whoever gazed upon the uplifted image of a copper serpent was healed. This story appears to draw upon an ancient idea that by forging and manipulating the entity's image, one could control it. In this passage, looking to the image of a metallic snake protected the people from the venom of the fiery serpents. From a mimetic perspective, the fiery serpents represent the sting of mimetic rivalry, which threatens to destroy the entire community. As this rivalry escalates, we see the people search for a scapegoat to blame as they band together and grumble against Moses and the Lord. Again, Moses plays the role of the community's scapegoat in this passage. The community first blame him for the crisis and band together against him and the Lord, claiming that they brought the people out into the wilderness to die, where there is no food or water, but only worthless food. Then they cry out to him for deliverance and beg Moses to intercede with the primitive sacred on their behalf. In response, Moses fashions a bronze serpent in the image of the community's own mimetic rivalry. In so doing, Moses names and externalizes the people's rivalry. When the people stop fighting and gaze upon the bronze serpent, the image of their own rivalry, their eyes are open to the double-edged sword of mimetic violence. If allowed to propagate within their community, mimetic rivalry will ultimately destroy them like the venom of fiery serpents. However, if the people can unite and all focus their gaze upon the common desired object of Canaan, they will survive and triumph over their enemies. How does all of this relate to Jesus being lifted up in a cross, as is cited in the Gospel of John? From a mimetic perspective, the cross represents an icon of mimetic rivalry, much like Moses' bronze snake. The scapegoat mechanism is revealed as people gaze upon the cross. John's Gospel describes this revelation as a type of salvation which leads to the life of the age. I've already discussed the idea of this life of the age extensively in our study of John's Gospel, and if you're not familiar with that, I'd recommend you go back and revisit that series in Season 1. In a nutshell, the life of the Messianic Age envisioned by Jesus and his followers is characterized by unprecedented peace and prosperity. 
They envision a world beyond mimetic rivalry and scapegoating in which the icon of the cross exposes the scapegoat mechanism for what it is. The revelatory power of the cross is quite similar to the revelation provided by Moses' bronze serpent. Yet while Jesus and his followers look forward to a world without mimetic rivalry, the Israelite community will harness the power of mimetic rivalry to destroy their enemies and take possession of their common desired object, the land of Canaan. Reading on now from verse 10. And the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ayir Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. And from there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waher bin Sufar, and the valleys of Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extend to the seat of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to Beer, that is, the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O wells, sing to it, the well that princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nathiel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitive, and his daughters captives, to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophar. Fire spread as far as Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og the king of Bashan came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people, until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. In these stories, we see that Israel has indeed learned to harness the primitive sacred to destroy their enemies. This is the lesson that Israel needed to learn to make it through their wilderness wanderings in the desert. Now that the community are united by a common desire for the promised land, they can now vent their mimetic violence outwards towards their enemies. Notice that the defeat of Sihon, king of the Amorites, begins with Israel requesting passage through his territory, with very similar words to those addressed earlier to the king of Edom. Again, the Israelites are refused passage, but this time, rather than turning away, they engage in mimetic violence with their enemy and prevail to take possession of the Amorites' territory. When the king of Bashan comes out to fight against the Israelites, there's no talk of peaceful passage through his territory. Instead, the people hear the call of the primitive sacred, which challenges them to believe in the power of mimetic rivalry and courageously destroy Og and his army without fear, just as they did to Sihon and the Amorites. Utterly consumed with mimetic desire for the land of Bashan, the Israelites defeat Og and his people, leaving no survivors. We see a definite progression here from the community's refusal to engage in mimetic rivalry with Eden to their destruction of Arad, the Amorites, and now Bashan. As we shall see in the next episode, Israel's ability to wield the primitive sacred against its enemies will make the nations around them quake with fear. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.